Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Anthony Dworkin. I'm a Senior Policy Fellow and Acting Research Director at ECFR. And this week, we're going to talk about Iran, a country that's been really prominent in European foreign policy in recent years. So Iran has a new president-elect, Ibrahim Raisi. He'll take office in early August, and he's a hardliner. What does his election mean for the prospects of the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA, which President Trump pulled out of, and President Biden is seeking to relaunch? And what does it mean about the future direction of Iran and its role at the center of regional tensions across the Middle East? So we're delighted to have three real experts to discuss this. First, Marges Bajogli, who teaches at the School of Advanced International Studies, SAIS, at Johns Hopkins in the US. Esfandiar Batman-Gelish, who runs the Bourse and Bazaar Foundation, an economic think tank focused on the Middle East and Central Asia, and he's currently a visiting fellow at ECFR. And Julian Barnes-Dacey, a familiar guest on this podcast, director of ECFR's MENET program. So thank you all very much for joining. Um, Narges, why don't we start with you? Um, and perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about this new president who's taking over the country. Um, how much of a hardliner is he and how should we interpret his election? Sure. Um, so Ibrahim uh, Raisi is a cleric um, who is married into a very prominent uh, clerical family and comes from the more hardline elements uh, of the post-revolutionary state. He's been a very loyal public servant to the Islamic Republic since the early decades of the revolution. Um, and he is uh, most prominently, I think, both internationally, but also internally, especially among uh, lots of different different activist groups and uh, families who participated in the revolution but were sidelined is known as being among the main judges that partook in uh, the execution of thousands of political prisoners in the late 1980s. Um, and uh, so he uh, is very, very loyal to the uh, Supreme Leader, the current Supreme Leader of the country. Um, and um, it remains to be seen how specifically hardline his policies will be going forward, but from everything that we've seen of him so far, um, I think that we should expect him to be a conservative uh, leaning president with conservative leaning uh, social and, and political policies. And definitely his base is the hardline Hezbollahi conservative base of the country. And should we then see this as a significant change of direction? following on from President Rouhani. Um, and what does it mean about the, the state of the country that he's taking over now? Does it show something about public opinion because his election was hardly a resounding victory? Or is it more a sense that the Supreme Leader is trying to reassert control or how should we interpret it? So that's a really good question. And I think it's sort of the million dollar question right now. It's not a... Um, a reflection of public opinion per se, because actually this election had the lowest participation rate of any election in the Islamic Republic in the post-revolutionary sphere. It also had the highest number of void uh, or white ballots that were cast uh, with, within this past 40 year history. So it's by no means a reflection of the popular will. Yet nonetheless, it is a reflection of the political and potentially military will at the top echelons of power in Iran. And 
And uh, what that entails is a desire to consolidate power across the political spectrum. Um, and now the conservatives slash hardliners do hold uh, all uh, levers of power across the top echelons of power uh, in Iran. And uh, I think what this reflects is, an, is a desire from the Supreme Leader's office, uh, as well as from within certain elements that not have power within the uh, Revolutionary Guard to uh, pursue a kind of what I would call Hezbollahi politics, uh, which they have pursued quite successfully, actually, from their point of view in the region. And they want to ensure that regional success on a domestic scale because they know that their lack of popularity on a domestic scale is their biggest Achilles heel. Great, that's really interesting. So and I'd like to come back and talk a little bit more about the domestic and those regional questions. But first, if we can pivot to the nuclear deal, because that is, uh, you know, in so many ways at the sort of center of the international politics surrounding Iran. So Yar, you might think on the one hand, having a hardliner there, you know, could make negotiations more difficult. But I know it's also been interpreted perhaps in a sort of uh, Nixon and China way that a hardliner might be best placed to actually deliver on, a, on an agreement. How do you see it? Well, the good news is that there hasn't been panic among Western officials about Raisi's election in terms of any impact it might have on uh, their successful conclusion of the nuclear negotiations currently underway in Vienna. And the reason for this is sort of twofold. One is that uh, the decision to engage in negotiations and to pursue the, the re-entry of the US into the nuclear deal reflects a consensus position among Iran's senior decision makers. Uh, foreign policy is not exclusively something that the president can set. Its uh, general trajectory is really set by the supreme leader and the details of that foreign policy are chosen and kind of defined by the Supreme National Security Council on which the president and the foreign minister are merely two members. So even if Raisi had vastly different uh, sort of personal beliefs, he would be unable to uh, sort of implement them uh, as, as something of his own making. But more importantly, Raisi has publicly stated his support for the nuclear deal, both in the debates and uh, in, most importantly in his first press conference, which reflects the fact that he plans to carry forward the negotiations as part of uh, this larger sort of consensus. The two challenges that emerge are one stemming from sort of the tone of Iranian diplomacy. So a concern that Western officials do have is that the composition of the negotiating team might change significantly, and that will lead to some challenges uh, with regards to how the negotiations could be taken over the line. So the hope is to complete the, the talks uh, before uh, Raisi is inaugurated in August, but time is running out. The second concern is that uh, the Western governments really had hoped that the nuclear deal would be a stepping stone to a wider, broader negotiation, something that the US has termed a more for more agreement. And at the moment, I think we would expect that the Raisi administration will have little inclination to engage in those negotiations. He reiterated some of the clear red lines in his first press conference, namely around Iran's regional policy and its missile program. And when he was asked by one of the Iranian journalists uh, 
uh, whether or not he would meet with the American president as a part of the sort of steps that he would need to take to solve the problems of the country. He gave a one word answer, no, which I think indicates kind of where his thinking is and, and um, where the broader system in Iran uh, is in terms of looking at the nuclear deal. The strategic logic for the deal is very clear, and I think that we shouldn't be too concerned about it being restored, but building on that deal will be very difficult. And where do you think the United States is on this? Would they be willing to come back in to a deal as it stands without, without any further indications of goodwill or that it would lead on to something else? I mean, is there the makings of a, an agreement there that does just have to be pushed over the line, as you said? I think so. And uh, Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, came out shortly after the election uh, outcome was clear to indicate that it makes no difference who's in charge, both because the U.S. considers the supreme leader to be the ultimate decision maker, but also because uh, it is in U.S. national security interest to put the nuclear issue back in the box, uh, to use their terminology. But the other reason that I wouldn't be too concerned that this will uh, change course of the Biden administration is that the outcome of this election, which was that there would be a hardline president, has been expected for a long time. Uh, we knew about voter apathy. Uh, we knew that uh, the um, political machinery around the Raisi candidacy was going to be quite uh, strong and that there weren't really any credible uh, rivals among the moderates or reformists. So I would suspect that if the Biden administration had been doing their homework, reading some of the good things that um, Nagas and others have published, they would know that uh, this was a likely outcome and would have accounted for that in their negotiating strategy. So I really do feel Feel that the, the issue at the moment is most of the terms of the deal are probably known, this new restored deal, and it's really up to the leaders in the different capitals, including in Tehran, to make some final few decisions where compromises are necessary to get this thing over the line. Julian, let's look a little from the European perspective now. Um, where do you think European leaders are in terms of going back, you know, bringing the, the U.S. back into the deal as it stands, more or less? is the, Would they be happy with a kind of restored deal rather than a, um, you know, reshaped or um, advanced deal? And uh, how, how do you think they're reacting to Raisi's election? So, so my sense is, it, it, in a sense, mirrors what, what you said about the U.S. reading at the moment. I think that there is a... Um, uh, has been some sense of where the kind of political wind was blowing in Iran uh, for some time now. Europeans uh, didn't exactly imagine that a new Rouhani type administration would be elected in, and, and they were prepared for that. The Europeans have obviously put a lot of effort over the last four years in trying to keep the deal alive, and, and, and they've been pretty focused over recent months in, in, in trying to get it back on track. And I think for, in the immediate um, uh, period that they, they want to see the JCPOA revived, and there isn't much much expectation that that, that will lead on to, to bigger and greater things. I mean, but you know, my sense as well is that the, the Europeans also acknowledge that you've got to bank what you can get, um, and the, the the strategic logic of trying to to cut an important non proliferation agreement on the nuclear front with the Iranians remains as important um, and as valid today as it did four years ago. And, you know, in the context of 
a more hardline government where, where other issues on, on the regional front or on human rights um, are closed down in terms of the possibility of progress, that does not, you know, that need to, to, to make progress on the nuclear front doesn't diminish. So I think the Europeans will want to get that agreement locked in again. They want to see those safeguards. I think they're very aware that without a new JCPOA or a renewed JCPOA, the risks actually only increase uh, with a hardline government in Tehran, because then actually you're going to get this escalatory cycle. Iran may push on with, with further kind of moves away from the deal, provoking other countries like Israel um, to, to take unilateral steps. So the situation becomes a lot more dangerous. So I think, yes, for Europeans, that there's an immediate interest and commitment to getting the JCPOA uh, back on track. Um, beyond that, all bets may be off, but but that in and of itself is, is a valuable kind of immediate goal. And and I think kind of it, it, the, the Europeans are rightly focused on that for the moment. Right. That does make sense. But zooming out a bit to look at the regional picture then, I mean, obviously, um, Iran and um, Saudi Arabia and some of its allies have been at the center of a really kind of uh, protracted, complex uh, dynamics of conflict and um, standoff across the region over a number of years. Um, how do you see that kind of those dynamics now um, as we look forward to Raisi coming into to office? Um, has there been any kind of um, reduction in tension? Do we see that potentially continuing or do you anticipate a, a resurgence of this dynamic with, with Iran engaged across the region and, um, and the Saudis and the other Gulf countries pushing back? So I, th I think there's a couple of things worth saying. One, as Yara already mentioned, you know, foreign policy is not an area where the president has a kind of a, a prerogative in, in the Iranian political system. And, and it's hard to argue that kind of there's been a, a Rouhani kind of moderate approach to regional policy over the last few, few years anyways, and that this new presidency is, is going to lead to any kind of dramatic shift in Iran's regional posture. I mean, the, 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 if anything, you can argue that the, kind of there has been hardline ascendancy on regional files for some time. And so, so that won't change dramatically with, with this new administration. And, and some are even making the case that for the likes of Saudi Arabia and others, well, you're going to be talking to a, a president or a foreign minister who is more reflective of the kind of securitized levers of powers that, that, of power that are ultimately making these decisions which will make kind of regional diet or facilitate regional dialogue. So that's one thing. The other thing to say is just that, that, look, over the last year, we've already seen some kind of softening on the regional front. Um, and we are not at the kind of intense, polarized place we were just a year ago, driven um, by the sense that kind of the Trump maximum pressure campaign was, or at least as was seen from, from the likes of kind of uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia was going to deliver results. Um, and we were kind of seeing this ongoing cycle of escalation. Actually, um, the, the, the unwillingness of Trump to really kind of uh, deliver action along with rhetoric and, and back up those words um, actually exposed a sense of vulnerability um, on the Gulf Arab side and, and initiated a, a, a dialogue and an outreach that has built up speed steam over the last year. And so now you've got a renewed dialogue between the Iranians and, and the Emiratis. You've got a renewed dialogue between um, the Saudis and, and the Iranians, which actually who met directly in, in Iraq quite recently. Um, so there are signs of, of, of a kind of, of, of some kind of new willingness on the part of these hostile regional powers to, to engage in, in new talks. I think they've recognized that, that things were spiraling out of control, that there was a risk of escalation driven by the Trump approach and, and that they needed to, to safeguard 
um, that situation. I, I think there are a couple of questions here. One is, you know, is, is this just a tactical kind of timeout, or is this something that that, that can be pushed um, in a, in a more strategic direction? Um, you know, do, do the are the Iranians and the Gulf Arab states willing to to, to kind of make um, deeper compromises to move that in a in a better direction? And and then I guess a question that kind of the likes of Nagas and Yar can answer is, you know, what what is the internal Iranian thinking on the regional situation at the moment? And you know, does is, is there a sense that they need to get their domestic house in order, um, uh, reap some of the kind of economic benefits of, of a nuclear deal, and, and kind of just put put the regional file aside uh, for the moment, or or is there a sense that they need to continue to mobilize on on the regional file because of what it means from a kind of ideological perspective for for the Iranian state because of the potential threat of Israel and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, you have asked the next question for me. So, Nargaz, uh, come to you first. How did, what do you see as the kind of, uh, you know, key priorities going forward of the, you know, maybe get to go beyond the, the president himself, the political establishment in Tehran? Uh, as far as regionally, I mean, I think there's a couple of things to note. One is that the Quds forces, so the IRGC's uh, regional sort of forces that, that have been the most prominent in places like Syria, Iraq, uh, and, and helping with the Houthis and uh, obviously uh, uh training very closely with Hezbollah and others, that they have been very, very supportive of Raisi since he began his candidacy. Um, and so there is, this is different than before with uh, the Quds forces and Rouhani. They were uh, not in favor of one another. So what we see right now is actually an alignment between uh, those who help run Iran's uh, military uh, engagement around the region with the new president. Um, and I think what that just means is uh, not necessarily that Raisi is going to, you know, as both Yar and, and Julian were saying, he's not going to be, he's not their commander in chief. Uh, the supreme leader is. Nonetheless, it will uh, decrease internal domestic pressure on the presidency if these sides are together, which it seems like they will be going forward rather than they were not under Rouhani. Uh, another thing I think that's important to consider, especially when it comes to the JCPOA and other regional talks that are happening, is that from the perspective of those who are uh, on the more hardline conservative camp in Iran who are coming into the presidency, uh, they see that their ability to withstand, economic, withstand maximum pressure from the Trump administration was actually their ability to um, uh, be very uh, on the uh, on the offensive in the region, um, and so uh, they. I don't foresee them necessarily scaling back on that. Yet, nonetheless, they do recognize that their economic situation at home needs to be relieved, and so I do think that they are going to play that card very strategically. Uh, that they will uh, continue to use it when they need to, especially in the face of the United States and Israel. Uh, but yet. Uh, they are also being very clear among the Saudis, the UAE, the Gulf states, um, that they uh, do not want to have heightened tensions everywhere that they're looking, regionally as well as domestically. And so I think that there's going to be a sense of balance, but that does not mean that they're going to retract. And Yara, how do you think the, the economy in Iran fits into this? Because obviously the the sanctions and in the period since the US pulled out of the nuclear deal have taken a, what seems like a pretty heavy toll. 
is the does that stand to be reversed um, if the the deal is kind of relaunched with U.S. participation? And what does that say about the, you know, the prospects and capacity of the Iranian government to to fulfill its goals at home and in the region? So engineering a strong economic recovery should absolutely be the primary goal of the Raisi administration. Uh, the concerns over the economy uh, following nearly three years of steep economic contraction in Iran were really the main issue for voters in this election. But of course, the outcome of the election didn't necessarily reflect what mattered to voters or their votes uh, in, to a large extent because of the low turnout and because of the issues that uh, Nagas mentioned. So we have this interesting dynamic where ostensibly the government should be prioritizing the economy, but there may be relatively uh, less pressure from Raisi's base for him to make this sort of the, the critical feature of his administration moving forward. I would also add that in the course of the debates, he did not demonstrate particularly strong or clear ideas about how he would uh, uh, sort of support Iran's economic recovery. But on the other hand, Raisi is a little bit fortunate because Iran's recovery has, in a sense, begun. The economy is actually growing again, uh, coming off of the shock of the pandemic last year. Inflation is lower than where it was uh, about a year ago when there was significant concern in Iran's economy that you were going to have a sort of runaway hyperinflation situation. And the currency has been very stable over the last nine months, uh, much to the credit of uh, Raisi's rival in the election, Abdul Nasser Hamati, the, the former central bank governor. Now, what that means is that Raisi could, in some sense, uh, sort of rest easy that the worst days for the economic pressure are behind him. And after all, we're talking about a moment right now where US secondary sanctions are still in place. And if they are lifted, uh, during, uh, as a result of the success of the negotiations in Vienna, there will be a further boost to Iran's economy. The trouble for Raisi, uh, thinking in the medium term, is that the recovery as it is right now is not strong enough or significant enough to mean that for those Iranians who lost out the most during the last three years, uh, that they can have a reasonable expectation that they're going to claw back to the standard of living that they had before the economic crisis began. And the additional problem is that the economic uh, relief from the lifting of sanctions in and of itself is probably not going to be enough to make the recovery as strong as needed. Because uh, at the moment, and this is uh, something that um, uh, I have a forthcoming commentary on for ECFR that should be out uh, tomorrow, but at the moment, European companies looking at the Iranian market are not uh, at as advanced a stage of preparation for re-entry as they were in 2014 or 2015 in the lead up to uh, the first implementation of the nuclear deal. And the reason for that is that the experience under Trump has made companies feel that the nuclear agreement and its sanctions relief are politically vulnerable and that um, they could get burned if they move to work with Iran again in an ambiguous environment and the deal falls apart uh, as it did in 2018. 
So Raisi can't assume that sanctions relief is going to be enough. So there is a, a requirement for his administration to get to grips with the economy, to exhibit effective management, and to try and alleviate the economic anxiety of ordinary Iranians. And his base is, to a large extent, a kind of working class base that will care about these issues. But there is an argument as well that the administration might use some of that sort of ideological messaging and you know some of the uh, political posturing that we know the hardline camp is very effective at to kind of distract or um or uh, turn attention away from the fact that the economic recovery is not going as intended julian you spoke before about how the europeans were going to be happy just to lock in uh, you know the kind of disarmament um, gains that the nuclear deal encompasses. But beyond that, what do you think the Europeans should be thinking um, and what should be their kind of policy goals as they look at Iran in the coming period? Well, look, I, I, firstly, just to say, I mean, I don't think they'll be happy with that in and of itself. I mean, I think in an ideal world, they would want much more and they recognize that there's a spectrum of issues that, that are on, kind of inv in, get involved with Iran here. But I think they will recognize the, the value in locking in uh, the JCPOA in, in the context of kind of the Iranian political environment. I mean, I think beyond that, um, you know, Yar, I think, touches on a dilemma which, which will kind of play out going forward, which is that there will be um, kind of a, a European and American strategic interest to make that, that nuclear deal sustainable, to, to, to lock it in, to cement it in, so that things don't unravel. And that will necessitate a degree of economic engagement and sanctions relief and, and making that work uh, with Iran and with an Iranian political system that, that is now controlled by hardliners. And navigating that that kind of tight tightrope, I think, will be one of the big challenges ahead. And a lot of the responsibility will fall on the Europeans and the kind of European economic approach, given that the American distance with Iran will, will remain much bigger. So I think that is clearly going to be a big priority. I think a second big priority um, will be saying, well, look, there is some kind of regional de-escalation at the moment. My sense is that this is more tactical than strategic. It's not that suddenly regional players want to be best friends with each other and they're willing to start talking about a new regional security architecture that can lock in stability. So I think the question to Europeans will be, how do you support that effort to take it beyond just a tactical opening? How do you try and make it a bit longer, a bit deeper, something that could turn into something a bit kind of more strategic and sustainable? And I think there... Um, you know, the questions will be asked in terms of what Europeans can do to both support um, what ultimately has to be a regionally owned dialogue. It shouldn't be something that Europeans step in and try and own. But this dialogue between between the Iranians and the Saudis in particular, and are there steps that Europeans can take around the edges of that to, to try and support it, push it forward, whether on the economic front, whether on the institutional building front, on other, you know, medical diplomacy, post-COVID and all of that. But I think there are also a couple of kind of theatres of action where, where this is playing out more acutely, where perhaps there's room for more progress. I mean, obviously, there's a big international push led by the US at the moment to reach a ceasefire in, in, in Yemen. Um, and I think the question is, you know, whether European diplomacy can, can step up a bit and make a difference there. We could well have a new European UN special envoy replacing Martin Griffiths. You know, there's going to be questions about trying to uh, lock in the ceasefire if it actually occurs. How can you work with your Omanis to, to put pressure on the Houthis? How can you use European engagement with Tehran to, to mobilize in that direction? How can you open up on the humanitarian front? You know, likewise on Iraq, which is a, is a space where these different actors compete. So I think 
these are the kind of questions and theatres where Europeans can, can make a difference. I think the one area where they can't play such a massive role is internal Iranian politics. And I think kind of the mistake would be now to think, look, you've got a, a hardline Iranian government um, in Tehran. You know, let's work the Europeans and the, Amer- and the Americans together to try and exert some pressure to try and play with Iranian domestic politics. That is only ever counterproductive. Um, and, and I think that is where even as one makes signs about the importance of human rights and one European should kind of state, state their kind of principles and, 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 and come out clean, clearly on that issue when, when cases arise. But ultimately, Iranian politics has to be left to the Iranian people, is my sense. Thanks. And um, now, I guess we are pretty much at the end of our time. But picking up on Julian there, I did want to ask you a, a big question and give you only a very short time to answer it in. But do you see the um, Rice's victory? Um, and, you know, I know that there's been some speculation that he could in turn take over as supreme leader at some point. Do you see this as a sign that the conservative ascendancy in the country is strong? You know, we've seen over the you know, over a number of years, some signs of social movements, protests, and so on. How do you see the kind of prospects for Iranian society? And if you could try and just give me a very brief sketch on that, I'd be great. Sure. Um, So just briefly on that, I would say that the uh, hardline elements in Iran are ascendant as far as really developing a monopoly over uh, power and over military might, both externally and internally in the security apparatus of the country. Um, I think that uh, their their, um, uh, experience over the Trump administration's maximum uh, pressure campaign has really taught them that, that uh, even with negotiations with the West, uh, there's there are no guarantees, and therefore they need to be as strong as possible regionally and internally. Um, and so uh, that is their calculus and how they how they have positioned themselves to come into the position that they are today with the Raisi. Nonetheless, on the domestic front, uh, they are not popular, as I had said before. But what this election also did was uh, really give a big defeat to the reformist and moderate camp of the country. And so what you have right now is a a population that is disillusioned and that is uh, very apathetic, yet without uh, traditional forms of leadership within them. And so what that means in the longer term and how these different sectors of society, civil uh, activists or not, begin to try to mobilize again, I think that that will take time and it is uh, unclear uh, how they will be met by those in the security establishment. Thank you very much. We've covered a lot of ground. This has been a fascinating discussion. Um, Before we close, traditionally on these podcasts, uh, we do what we call our bookshelf segment. We ask our guests to recommend something either on this subject or something else that they've been reading and would uh, advise others to read. Um, So Julian, maybe we can go to you first. What, uh, What have you been reading or looking at recently? My main kind of area of focus and work is Syria. I'm, I'm reading a new book out um, by a former UN official, Carsten Wieland, or I'm, I'm hoping to get this book soon. Syria and the Neutrality that Trap, The Dilemmas of Delivering Humanitarian Aid Through Violent Regimes. So it, it looks at how I, I'm imagining the kind of international community, the West grapples with, with this dilemma of, you know, huge humanitarian catastrophe, how you get aid into Syria, 
given um given the kind of Assad regime brutal control on the over the country um and that kind of plays out across so many different issues for, for Europeans so that's next on my reading list thanks Julian and uh, Nargis how about you the book that I just finished reading last night was Television and the Afghan Culture Wars by Wajma Osman, who's a media scholar. Um, so I pay a lot of attention to different ways in which narratives come to uh, get control um, or, or attempts at control within societies. And for me, especially with the Taliban coming back in full force, it seems in, in Afghanistan, I was really interested in trying to understand better uh, the different kinds of narrative and cultural wars that are happening in Afghanistan among the different sectors of society. That uh, does indeed sound very timely. And Yar, how about you? So I'm going to recommend a book that's not actually about the Middle East, but I think was very useful to my thinking on the region. I recently finished reading uh, a book by Carlo Levi, uh, who is an Italian intellectual, uh, called Christ Stopped at Eboli. And it was written when he was exiled in uh, a set of villages in southern Italy for his opposition to Mussolini in the 1930s. And it's essentially a portrait of life in those villages in southern Italy. And I think the main takeaway for me is that in his description of how um, the Italian uh, sort of state had diverged in terms of its development between North and South, and also in terms of his description of this unique uh, kind of what he, he described as a culture in which time had sort of stopped functioning. Um, it's a really good reminder that a lot can happen in 70 years because what he's describing happened, you know, basically between 70 and 90, 70 years ago, it hadn't yet changed. And today, you know, this book is um, in some sense unrecognizable in terms of what it's describing about the places it's describing. So when we talk about the Middle East as a region that is um, allergic to change or difficult to change or not developing, I think the, the idea is that if you just find yourself a few decades of relative stability and political leadership, and uh, particularly, I think, um, where the people are stakeholders in that growth, you know, you can end up in a situation where suddenly countries become unrecognizable. And that was a, a somewhat hopeful thing to sort of take away uh, from the book. Yeah, that's interesting. And I really like that book as well, actually. Um, and I've been reading a book is by a Chilean author called Benjamin Labitat. Um, and it's called When We Cease to Understand the World. Um, but it's not the, the plea of a confused think tanker. It's actually a kind of quasi-novel, quasi-nonfiction book about um, scientists and mathematicians in the 20th century trying to make sense of the increasingly strange and complex things they were discovering and how disturbing they found it. And the underlying message seems to be that, you know, most brilliant scientists and mathematicians are a bit crazy. So uh, for those of us who are, you know, hopeless at science, that's uh, kind of reassuring, but it's a pretty kind of uh, strange and fascinating read. So that's it for this week. We'll put a link to all the publications we mentioned on our website, ecfr.eu. Uh, thank you all for taking part. For now, from Nargis Bajogli, Asfandiar Batmangelij, from Julian Barnes-Dacy, and from myself, Anthony Dworkin, it's goodbye for this week. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Halpenthal, and the editor of this week's episode is Chris Eichberger. Mm -hmm.